It's not that different than someone being short versus someone being tall. Like, I think it's easy for someone to be like, oh, climbing's not fair for you because you're missing a hand, but it's not like fair for anybody. And that's why climbing is really cool. Like the rock doesn't give a shit if you're tall or you're short or you're flexible or you're not. And I'm just another variation of tall, short, wide, skinny, and the rock doesn't care. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show, where I talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training, nutrition, tactics, and mental game, and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity. Welcome back after last week's mind-blowing pro clinic on training power with Dr. Tyler Nelson. Y'all, I'm super psyched that you're here today as we chalk up for a chat with Mo Beck. As a competitive climber, Mo has won nine national titles, a gold medal at the 24 Paraclimbing World Championships in Spain, and defended that title with a gold medal at the 2016 World Championships in Paris. Mo became world famous as the subject of the fantastic, inspiring, and also quite hilarious Cedar Wright film Stumped, which documented her journey to send 12A with half the hands most of us climbers use. Mo was also named a 2019 National Geographic Explorer of the Year after completing an expedition to the Cirque of the Unclimbables. Y'all, this conversation is full of struggle, stoke, laughs, and a ton of actionable takeaways, regardless of how many hands you have. So y'all, I got super close on the fall proj last week, which is this mega fun 12D called Jesus Wept. You would know that if you've been following along with me this fall. Look, I just something broke through here. I don't know, maybe my tactics are getting dialed. Maybe just the rock is getting colder and stickier. Or maybe it was because Eric Hurst was belaying me. Now, surely y'all know the name Eric Hurst. He's the mind behind Training for Climbing, as well as the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle, Fizzy Vantage. This is a line of products created by climbers for climbers so that we can all level up in our training and nutrition. And if you've ever met Eric or you've heard his great podcasts, you know that he is the real deal. His science-backed products are used by over 50 pro athletes from Jonathan Segrist and Brittany Gorris to Katie Lambert and Drew Ruana. And why would that be? Well, it's because it works, you guys. I've been a paying customer for years and I have truly felt the difference just as I did on this proj last week. I know it's gonna go soon. If you're looking to train harder and climb stronger, check out all that Fizzy Vantage has to offer. Just hit that link in the show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full price nutrition order at fizzyvantage.com. And I'm proud to share that the official gear sponsor here at The Struggle is Petzl. You guys, I've been using Petzl gear since I learned how to climb trad out west about a decade ago, and they're as rad and reliable as it gets. I am super psyched on their new Sirocco helmet, which goes above and beyond the UIAA and CE helmet standards to give an extra level of protection on the top and the side of the helmet. Why does that matter? Well, when you're climbing at your limit, you want to know that your melon is protected from the unexpected whip or rockfall, and the Sirocco gives you that confidence. It is ultralight, you don't even know you're wearing it, and it's just packed with vents for excellent airflow. If you all need a helmet, this is the one. Check it out at your local gear shop or pop by Petzl.com to access the inaccessible. 
And this episode is also sponsored by Friction Labs Chalk, which I have been using for years because it is the best. This project I've been working on is super long, and I spend about 20 minutes on the route as I try to find some frictiony like rests between crux sections. There's no like amazing rests, but there's like good rests if you can get them. And the more friction I can put on my palms on those rests, the less my fingers have to take on. So I've just dialed in my chalk game to help me out. I start off with a base layer of Friction Lab's Secret Stuff Liquid Chalk, which just lasts forever. And then I freshen things up with my usual Gorilla Grip while I'm on route. I'm telling you, the grip's amazing, and I am resting well on holds that I used to have to be pretty engaged on. That is going to be my key to sending. Look, try Friction Lab's yourself. You're going to love it. And if you don't, they'll give you your money back. That's how psyched they are to help you level up your game. Enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. Lastly, y'all, this episode is carbon neutral in partnership with our friends over at the Honnold Foundation. Stick around after the interview to hear more about the amazing work that HF is doing. All right, huge shout out to you patrons of The Struggle. Thank you so much for your support. If you're not a patron, think about joining the community here. You can get ad-free episodes, so boom, would have just saved yourself a few minutes right there. And you'll also get access to all sorts of other really rad perks. I'll tell you more about that later. But first, let's crack open an ice-cold 40-ounce bottle of Struggle with Mobeck. Mobeck, welcome to the Struggle Climbing Show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure. I know you've been you've been running around like crazy. Um, <laughs> I feel like you're a hard person to pin down. Yeah. Um, I mean, lately, it's it's a fortunate thing. I'm privileged um, to be running around. And lately, I feel like I'm mostly running around talking about climbing rather than doing a lot of climbing. Um, it's kind of my world right now. But, you know, it's it's really fun. It's not the worst thing to be talking to people about. <laughs> And what do you find more challenging, the climbing itself or or the talking about the climbing? So I really like talking to people. Like, I, I love public speaking. I love getting up there and sharing my story. Uh, so probably the climbing is is more challenging, um, especially with my schedule lately. Like, I'm home for three or four days at a time. And, you know, when I'm on the flight home, I'm like, okay, I'm going to wake up early tomorrow. I'm going to, like, go for a run, do some climbing. And then I end up just laying in bed with my dogs until, like, 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> So it's definitely, this is the summer of fighting to both find balance and have it all. Well, that sounds like a struggle. And here we are with a perfect segue to talk about struggle. Of course, we're going to dive into specifics about your training and your nutrition tactics, mental game, the usual jam here at the Struggle Climbing Show. But before we get specific, let's let's zoom out. What is your relationship with struggle? How do you see struggle through the lens of climbing? I kind of like struggle. Um, I like things that are hard. I think that, you know, if something's easy, I'm not growing, I'm not getting better. It's easier to walk away because you feel like you're done, you've peaked. Whereas one of my favorite things about climbing is it can always be hard. It can always be a struggle. There's always something to get better at. And it doesn't have to be a physical struggle. It, it can be mental. It can be technical. Like I'm in the process of getting my guide certifications and I'm just like, I'm cruxing out on these stupid knots like in the process. Um, and so I just love how climbing has so many different layers of struggle. It's not like other sports, but I think the struggle is just like it's physically hard. You know, climbing has it all, which means I'm also always struggling. Has your view on struggle changed or evolved as you've grown as a climber? 
Yeah. So I've been climbing for a while. Um, and it's it's an intimidating sport to get into. It's a lot of ego. And so when I started, I thought that struggling or failure would advertise that I didn't know what I was doing. The truth is I didn't know what I was doing, right? And so I ended up kind of holding myself back because I was self-conscious of like, oh, if I admit that I don't know how to place a camp, like I know what these things are, but I feel like I have this ego where I should know how to do it, but I don't I'll admit it. So I'm just going to avoid everything entirely. And I feel like that held me back years, probably. probably I probably wasted years of just being super self-conscious. And then kind of the beauty of getting older is you don't care what other people think as much. And then also, I do think the climbing community has gotten better about teaching and being more open about what you don't know. So the older I get, the more I realize that if someone, if I'm watching someone, they're not struggling, I'm like, mm, well, then what's the point? Or like, what are they hiding? What are they bad at? What are they, what are they, what are they not showing me? So my favorite partners um, from training to Alpine, my favorite people to climb with are the ones who are just like, yeah, this ebbing sucks right now. Like, I love it when people talk about what's hard because I just think that makes them more and more genuine and I can see what they're going through like I think I used to want to hide the fact that I struggled and now it's like one of my favorite things to talk about I love that yeah there is there it is a liberating feeling to be able to open up about that I wrestled with that myself a lot with a fear of falling and and not wanting to share it and then like as soon as I just started voicing it to my belay partners I was like oh fuck yeah I feel so much better you know it's just like such an yeah. interesting thing but there is like ego that's wrapped up in that Yeah and the right partners I think don't depress you so like I'm still not a very good especially on-site leader cuz I'm like well what if there's like a left hold up there I can't reach or a clip I can't make and and sometimes it's valid right like climbs can be sketchier for me to lead than others but my favorite partners are the ones who are just like on one hand, they'll be like, totally hear you. I'll take this pitch. Or they'll be like, mm, no, you should really do this one. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of knowing when to call someone out to, to be like, suck it up and take the punch. Um, it's a really valuable skill to have. <laughs> so right now, I typically kind of move us forward into the next section. But I, but I want to pause here for a second, because something that we didn't touch on in this concept of struggle specifically is the fact that you are a disabled climber or a disabled person, or I don't even know if disabled is the right word to be perfectly honest. So please correct me if I'm not using the right terminology, but you have one hand, right? Whereas I have two and most people who are listening probably right now climb with two hands. And I would think that your experience with struggle is um, unique because of that, of course, but also um, it could be relatable in, in different ways as well. And so, um, just with that in mind, I'd like to understand from you how you view struggle, how you view being a climber uh, who, who only has one hand to be able to climb with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, on the bad days, it's a total crutch excuse. Um, you know, especially especially with leading, I get really self-conscious that I'm like a quote unquote pro climber and like I really don't lead that hard that often. Um, and for me, that's my excuse, right? It's 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 my I try not to use it as an excuse, but it's also right there, right? But then on my good days, it's not that different than someone being short versus someone being tall. Like, I think it's easy for someone to be like, oh, climbing's not fair for you because you're missing a hand. But it's not like really fair for anybody. And that's why climbing is really cool. Like the rock doesn't give a shit if you're tall or you're short or you're flexible or you're not. And I'm just another variation of tall, short, wide, skinny, and the rock doesn't care. So I just, if anything, it's definitely more mental because everyone, everyone struggles physically climbing. And my struggle might be a little more different. Um, but for my mental game, it's like at a certain level, I have to have had learned to accept that 
you know, grades do matter, right? That's why we climb. We like chasing grades. But they especially don't matter for me because I can climb a 512 one day and then I have to bail on a 58 the next because I can't just like make a reach because I have a negative 13 ape index. So it's a little, little more than most negative apes. Um, right. And it's like I could beat myself and I do like beat myself up over that. I can be like, man, like I'm not worthy. I'm an imposter. I shouldn't be in this space because I suck. Um, and then I just have to be like, yeah, but you also still did that 512 or you did lead that pitch before it. And, and it's just like this constant battle of like, and some days it's okay to just want to whine about it. It's okay to just complain, I think. <laughs> like let that out, be like, oh, this sucks. But then it's about what you do with it the next day. I think that's that's what makes the difference. Yeah, right on. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, I, I read an interview that you had done a while back and you were talking about just how your parents raised you. Um, because you were born with without your hand, and um, you of course adapted really well, but also you, it sounds like you hadn't been catered to by your parents. Like when it came time to tying your shoes, I think as you were relaying the story, you learned how to tie your shoes, which I imagine is pretty freaking hard with one hand. It's hard for a kid to tie their shoes with two hands, and then I I kind of carry that over to climbing, and I think about aspects that aren't just about the climbing itself, like just the moving over rock, but you've been out doing a lot of alpine and multi-pitch and these kinds of things. And and there's so much there from rope management to tying various knots. And I, like, I think about myself, like how hard it is for me to properly tie a double fisherman's or whatever with two hands. Is there a unique um, struggle for you aside from just the movement over rock with your, with your huge negative ape and, and, and all of that? You know, is there are there aspects of climbing that you're just like I just can't do this, or um, it's it's like prohibitively hard to do, or have you figured it all out? Yeah, I mean, a lot of things I struggle with. I have to imagine I'd still suck at with two hands. Like that's just me. Like, <laughs> like I'm a terrible rope coiler, and yeah, with one hand they're a little more lopsided and stuff. But I look at my coils. I'm like, God, honestly, if I had two hands, they'd still be sloppy pieces of shit. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I'm just not that person. Um, it took me a while to learn how to lead belay. You know, that was something that was just like, oh, you can't do it with one hand. Um, and then, and that was tough because you can't be an equal partner if you can't lead belay. You're always climbing as a party of three and it really holds you back. Um, but then when I cracked that nut, I was like, oh, this actually isn't that much different than how two-handed people do it. Um, and that opened up a whole world, but. How do you do that? Just like mechanically? Yeah. So because I have, I do have an elbow. Um, so like, I'll just hold the gree in my right hand, like a normal hand and just pinch the lead rope with my elbow and pull it out this way. Um, and it works pretty well. Uh, I just can't do, like if you're in rifle and you need to do this giant monkey clip on your project where you're like maxed out, I'm probably not your belayer because I will short rope you. <laughs> That's just something that my partners know. Like, Got it. They might get short roped if they're doing like double clips or something. Uh, you'll feed out, out, you'll so feed out smaller lengths, but faster. Yeah. Just be like constantly moving yeah. quickly. And, and so they, they know that. A lot, of, a lot of stuff kind of came up like through taking my SPI course, which was just like, yeah, like sliding single a prusik up to, yeah, my single pitch instructor, like, you know, the classic method is to take a prusik and slide it up the rope. But I'm like, well, if I don't have a free hand to do that since my hand is busy down here, so I'm going to use a roll and lock or a micro traction to do that instead of a prusik. Sure. Um, you know, little adjustments, man, what's something I can't do? Nothing. It's like, I'll do it different, but I feel like very rarely am I like, like I'll never juggle, but I can't think of anything with climbing specifically. Like there's moves I can't do. By the way, you could totally juggle. Maybe. I have a horror story about, remember the juggle sticks? Yeah. I demanded getting a set of those for Christmas. My parents are like, okay. 
and I could just hit it once and then it would just fall <laughs> to the ground. And I'd be like, uh, aha. Oh, it's, so uh, it's like this, like, is it masochistic? You like the, the, the one handed yeah. girl asks I think for I was like sticks. 10 years old in the playground, just like, damn it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I don't think, you know, I've learned how to ask for help. It's hard for me to ask for help. I'm stubborn. But I've learned that, yeah, if my partner wraps it for me and I wrap to the anchor second, I may be like, yo, can you clip me in? Like rather sure. than me like trying to finagle. Like there's stuff I can do that it's just easier if I ask for help for. But man, like outside of reaches and moves and who doesn't run into a reach or a move they can't do. I think where I run more into like the I can't is actually on the training side, like in the gym. Like certain drills, certain, certain you know, exercises that I'm like this sucks enough that I'm just going to pass. Perfect transition. I love it. Thank you. Okay, good. Let's talk about training. Let's get nerdy. Let's dive in. Where have you or where do you struggle, Mo, with your training specifically? Yeah, so I have the same struggles as most people where um, I love climbing. I can climb every day. Training for climbing is a whole different bag, and that can be hard to motivate for, you know, especially now that I do this full time. You know, I'll, I'll go to the gym at 10 in the morning alone, and I just sit there. I'm like, Mm, I could do these drills alone, like, or I could just kilter board for two hours and then call it good. Like, um, I'm great at ignoring my training plans. <laughs> um, so there's that mental struggle, right, that I think every serious climber has of like, you know, to take it to the next step, you have to start training, not just climbing more. Um, but I feel like my training cycles are always so wavy that I can always get away with a lot of improvement from just climbing more still. Um but as far as like more traditional stuff that I, I sidestep is like, I don't, I don't hangboard. And that's such a huge part of advanced climbing training. Um, I think I could, I see videos of other one-handed climbers hangboarding, um, but it's just never felt good to me. Like it hurts in the wrong way. Uh, and so I've worked with my coach to just be like, cool, well, we're just going to do like, we're going to do specific problems on the kilter board for your finger sessions, or we're going to like seek out these certain routes for finger sessions, or we're going to, um, I use a gripple, which is like the OG portable um, fingerboard kind of thing. So, um, so just so I'm kind of understanding the, what you're training here, is that is. where you're talking about like top end power or, yeah. or you won't hangboard even if it's like you know, assisted removing weights with a pulley kind of like long duration density I, hangs or any of yeah, that. Yeah, I should, I should keep trying. But every time I try to start a hangboard regimen, I'm just like, I end up being sideways underneath it. So there's mm -hmm. always like more of a spin factor. And I'm just like, oh, this is like, and because it's on one hand, it's like, it hurts this part of your neck. And I'm just For like, sure. this just doesn't feel, it feels like I'm going to hurt myself more than get strong fingers. <laughs> Um, well, sure. And and it sounds like you like to climb as well. And so like trading yeah. out hangboarding to do, you know, some specific work on a board doesn't sound like too much of a sacrifice because board climbing is fun. Yeah. Board climbing is awesome. Um, and similarly, my, my coach is always like, you have to campus. We have to campus. And I see other one-handed athletes campus, but I'm just like, God, every time I just like, you can, I can only use the biggest rungs, right? I have to come in from the side with my stump and then I ended up punching the wall um, or I end up. Like it bruises my stump every time to like hit the side of those bars. And again, I'm just like, this just, it just hurts. And like, I enjoy training. That's not fun. I enjoy the suck. But when it's just like, mm, the balance of suck here is a little off. Um, sure. So again, I, that's where like kilter boards, especially um, have really changed my game. You know, in the last, I've been kiltering for like maybe two years now. Um, and I feel like I'm making up for a lot of those misses from earlier in my training where I wasn't campusing and I wasn't hangboarding. All of a sudden, I'm like able to do that, that power 
and that finger strength through boards. Yeah, this is interesting because I, I do think there's plenty of people out there, even with two hands, who really don't enjoy hangboarding, or maybe they've got a shoulder issue that prevents it, or any number of things. It's just too boring for them. And training on a board, you know, like a, a kilter or moon, you know, whatever your your flavor or whatever's available at the gym, um, seems like it could be a really good way to uh, essentially replace, in some regard, the hangboard protocol. And so I'm curious, now you've got a couple of years under your belt, what has been the result? And and how often are you doing it? Is this like, you know, a couple times a week that you're on the board? Yeah, it's I've, I, one time I was doing like four or five and I was just like, ooh, this is bad. This hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Even though it was just like quickie fun sections, I was like, oh no, this is not sustainable. Um, yeah, I would say if it's like, oh, I have a comp coming up, you know, in the next couple months, like the the kilter, I'll usually actually start my comp training. I, I kind of don't, I don't follow the whole endurance, then strength and power, then P. I kind of start on the kilter board because um, endurance always comes back fast for me. And for at least our comps, like it's not mega, mega endurance. So I feel like just by getting back into the gym routine, because I, I, I'll spend months of not going to the gym. If I'm like alpine mode, I'm trail running i'm climbing mountains to train for that i'm not climbing but yeah once i get back into the gym cycle i'll actually usually start with bouldering and kiltering to get that power back because that's the thing sure. i've lost the most when i'm in alpine world right uh, and endurance for me i've always had decent endurance and it always kind of just happens for me so just looking at the kind of the, the the training the power side for a second are there key takeaways is there learning that you've identified that might apply to those of us with two hands um, that is different than our typical training style? You know, like, mm -hmm. are there any hacks, do you think? Well, I think the biggest takeaway is to mix it up. Like when I first started competing, um, I just did rope climbing and then cross training, like in the weight room, doing pull-ups and stuff like that. And then my first coach was like, mm, you need to boulder. And I was like, oh, well, bouldering so hard with one hand, it sucks, I can't do it. And he was just like, do it anyway. And so not only did I find that I actually really like bouldering, at least in the gym, um, but the rewards were like pretty immediate, like that power, that strength. I think the big takeaway there is, is mixing it up. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of your listeners already mix it up between like boards and boulder and ropes, but find something to tweak in the routine. Um, especially once you're at the point where your improvements are so slim. Like I'm always jealous of new climbers because I'm like, you're going to get so much better so fast. <laughs> sure. And I have to work so hard for like the slightest improvement. Um, but mixing it up is the big thing because that also hits that mental game too. You're not just doing the same thing for three cycles a year. I love that advice. I definitely get caught in kind of a, a, a habit of just doing similar things over and over again. And and I'm also stubborn. I hate being kind of shaken out of my like my habits and my patterns, but but mixing it up and, and bouldering for me was a huge one when finally there was a critical mass of people in my life as well as professionals just like yelling at me to start bouldering. Um, and it's made a massive difference on like even what I would consider like, you know, not even near top end, like pumpy climbs at the red. So I do love that. I think that's just critical advice to just shake it up. Last question on this section here, Mo, is how you look at the concept of rest and sleep as it pertains to your training, your performance, and and you know everything. It sounds like you've got a pretty busy life and and schedule, um, as a lot of us do with families or jobs, and and you know rest and sleep can be a struggle. It is for me. How is it for you? What are you doing? I'm I'm bad at resting because what we do is fun. Mm. <laughs> it's it's funny because I feel like in the world of social media. 
we all feel like we're always playing catch up. Like you're always seeing people who look like they're constantly climbing, they're constantly training, like you're the lazy one, you have to get after it. Um, and so I feel like I don't overtrain. I feel like I undertrain, but then I have friends who are just like, Jesus, slow down. Like you don't go for 10 mile trail runs on your rest day. <laughs> like you don't, <laughs> like that's not resting. It actually helps. My husband is not a climber at all. He hates it. Um, so my that helps me kind of rest, not only like from a physical aspect, like, okay, today we're going to go fishing together, but also just from a mental step away from climbing. Like, I'm really grateful that he has other activities that we share together that let me get pulled away. And like, it feels like a fight sometimes because I love those activities too. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it keeps me, even though I'm not dedicating every waking moment to climbing, I think it makes me a better climber because of that. Let's shift gears now and talk about nutrition and where have you struggled in your nutrition? We're, we're laughing here because you've, you've at least got an, an on-camera reputation <laughs> for liking, liking maybe not uh, handfuls of kale and, and uh, raw almonds, but you know, you know, sometimes things are portrayed in a funny way on film that aren't, aren't the reality, but you know, where, do, yeah, where do you struggle with your nutrition? Yeah. I mean, now that that depiction is, is very real. Um, I'm just now about five years out from that film and in my mid thirties. And I think that's where it starts to hit that you can't just eat ring dings all day and still feel good. I mean, you can climb through anything, but I think ultimately your body starts saying like, you could be at your desk all day and not feel good because of what you're doing to yourself. Sure. So I would say it's been a, it's been a journey paying more attention, especially through training cycles. Um, like there was a, there was a stretch where I was doing orange theory almost every morning at seven o'clock. I'd go home, take a nap, go to the climbing gym, climb for three hours, and then weightlift again. And that almost killed me until I was just like, oh, I think I'm not getting enough protein. Hmm. And it was amazing to feel, to sort of feel my body working like a machine, like when you screw it up so badly that like eating really good for like three days is all it needs to be like, oh, wow, like I should keep eating well. It was that apparent. Like if I'm traveling a lot, like eating hotel food or airport food, like it doesn't take long to get feeling crappy. And then by the same time, it doesn't take that long to get feeling good. What's sustainable, though, is a whole different story. So that's just something we've done, like as a whole household. <laughs> right? We're all getting we're all in our mid 30s, early 40s. We're all just like, OK, we need to dial this in a little bit. Um, but I think I think feeling feeling at work, right? Like realizing, oh, this body is a machine. Like you feel it through training, right? Like, oh, if I climb more and train, I get stronger. But when you feel it with your food and nutrition as well, it's like, oh, if I eat better, I feel better. But at the same time, I always say there's no goal worth skipping dessert over. Like if I do a comp and don't do as well as I want, I'm not going to be like, oh, well, I should have had that cupcake last week. Like I don't prescribe to that black and white at all. That might be my favorite quote on the Struggle Climbing Show I've ever heard. <laughs> there is no goal worth skipping dessert over. And it's really just like, if you're not happy, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, totally. And and I think for almost every single person listening right now, climbing is something that is intended to bring joy to our lives. But there is this baggage around nutrition specifically, I feel like, that can get wrapped up where we feel like we have to withhold or we feel like... We need to set super strict parameters. And if we're, you know, quote unquote cheating, then, you know, we're, we're just going to never achieve what we want to achieve. And, and obviously there's a balance to be had here. And the sport is fortunately 
moving past this lighter is better as kind of the hard and fast rule um, for for achieving your goals in climbing. But, you know, we're not there yet. And I think this conversation that we're having right now is awesome because you found that you were um, extremely unhealthy in a certain sense with regard to your nutrition. Now you're seeing that what you put in is what you put out. And I, I want to learn a little bit more about that. One of the things that you just touched on kind of immediately was talking about protein. And how did you shift protein? Well, I'll back up even further. I feel like when I'm in a training cycle, I want to take nutrition intentionally. And, and I actually even have nutrition cycles. Like if I'm, if I'm in more of an alpine training mode, I'll, I'll eat whatever I want. I'll drink whatever I want. I'll have three beers and a cocktail. Like that's, I'll go ham. If it's a comp cycle, that's when I tend to be like, okay, I, I'm not drinking. Like I have to go sober because I'm bad at cutting back. It's all or nothing for me. <laughs> so I just, I just go dry. And I feel like that first step with alcohol switches something in my head where without realizing it, I'm also making better nutrition choices where I will bring the shake to the gym or I will pre-make a quinoa salad or <clears throat> I will make sure to add a higher quality of cheese to my salad or something like that. Sure. You know, I'll, I'll still eat fried chicken and cheesecake, but for me, the alcohol is the big switch that then I'm more likely to... Or I just like once I commit to that, then I'm like, OK, I will do all my workouts this week and I I will eat better. Um, so I think it's finding the one thing it doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be my one thing is going to be waking up every morning at eight and taking a dog for a walk. But I think finding that switch where it's just like it's game time. We are we are in training mode now. But then also having times where the switch is off. Like I guarantee you, once the world championships is over, I am back to drinking a lot of whiskey. <laughs> yeah, Alpine mode sounds awesome. Alpine was more fun that way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's clip into tactics now, Mo. And uh, where have you struggled with your tactics? I, I guess I don't really think of myself as a tactical climber. Like I have projects, I work on them. But when I think of like, oh, what's my tactic for? I'm like, I don't really know. I just kind of like try it once, see how it feels, <laughs> like see if it feels possible, see if I like it. Um. Very much into breaking down sections. And I guess, I guess we can even really, it's like when you preview a comp route, like you see everybody out there nerding out, doing the moves. And like, I can't, that, that means nothing to me. Like, I can't, I don't know if people are memorizing it, but I look at a competitive route and I'm like, well, I'll feel it when I get there. Um, and so I have learned to at least identify the cruxes and the rests. And so I kind of try to do that outside too. Like on that first pass, I'll be like, okay, well, here's where I need to stop and here's where I need to go. And you do that from the ground or you'll do that like on a, like a beta burn? Yeah, for an outside project, it'll be the beta burn. You know, outside routes are so much harder to read from the ground than a bright orange comp sure. where you know the shapes, you know the holds. You know, tactics for me is probably actually more of a balance. Like when I went into heavy duty project mode for the, the climb for Stumped, it was just beating over and over and it was my job. And I think the reason I got it was because it was, I didn't climb anything else for like four months. Like I was just only at that crag. Turns out, it was just conditions based. Like once it became October and the crag was cooler, that's, I think that's why I sent it. It wasn't because I got that much stronger, that much smarter. It was just conditions based. So I think being realistic about the expectations based on conditions as well, like instead of beating myself over the head, like if we hadn't made that film, I probably wouldn't have sent it until next spring or something. <laughs> I really wouldn't have been up there as much because it was a full sun Boulder Canyon crag. But like I project right now outside, um, I actually haven't even been going to it because I've been in alpine mode. I'm like, there's no point. Like, why 
risk blowing a finger? Why give up having fun on more moderate routes when I'm just not in that like mid 512 sport climbing shape right now? Um, so I think a tactic is also just like a backed out. I guess I'm more of a bigger picture tactic person. Like, where am I going to put my effort right now based on where I'm at? You noted something there that I think is just incredibly important to highlight for a second. And that's kind of this this uh, concept of conditioning versus conditions. And it's something I always get wrong, it seems like. Like every year, fall comes and, you know, quote unquote, send timber hits. But, um, you know, out here at the red, uh, send timber might as well be July because it's like super hot and super high humidity. But still in my head, I'm like, oh, it's time to project. And so I get on the project and I put in probably, you know, a hundred more burns than I would need to if I just kind of sussed it out in the warmer temperatures and then just waited until you know like an actual low temperature low humidity day that here tends to come around in november and it sounds like that was your experience as well on days of future past which was a 12a which of course you famously you know projected and then sent in stumped um is is that kind of what the experience was for you now looking back yeah that's what happened to me on days like i probably had all of the moves i needed on like session five but it was like session 20 that it went down because I spent the in-betweens just greasing off of this slimy, gross, humid crack. And instead, yeah, once it became October, you know, we, I ended up sending at like 8.30 in the morning in October when it was cool and crisp and shady. And I was just like, that didn't feel that hard. What the hell? <laughs> <laughs> Outdoor projecting hard sport, it's so fun and it's so interesting and it's so arbitrary, I would say, too. Yeah, I think that's the kind of what keeps us coming back to some extent, right? Like rock climbing is kind of this abusive relationship and some days it's easy and some days it's impossible and you don't always know what you're going to get. And, you know, tactically speaking, I think there's maybe something for us to dive into a little bit more here with regard to specifically what you face as a challenge. Um, and that's your negative 13 ape which uh, you know for most people listening they're not going to have an ape index that's that's that negative right might be one or two or three or four um maybe positive and so for for us normies as you say um with a bit of a wink as you talk about able-bodied climbers um like on social media you know what can we glean from that how can we tactically learn from what you've learned on on how to take on a route and, and why don't we just continue looking at days of future past here because i think most people listening have seen stumped and have seen you work on that and i'm curious if you know there's somebody like me that's going to go climb that climb can i learn tactically speaking from what you had to do creatively to get around the fact that you couldn't reach certain holds that most climbers would be able to reach there's ways that you've had to figure out movement that you might not see on YouTube or you might not see other climbers do. And and how can that, um, in, a, in a creative sense, how can that help any climber think about working through challenging moves tactically? Well, it's funny you mentioned YouTube um, because so Days of Future Past was my first 512 and that was documented. Everybody saw the movie. And I think a lot of people saw that and they're like, oh, if this one-armed chick can do it, I can make this my first 512. <laughs> and and so I'll be up there at that crag because there's so much good climbing up there. And I'll see these like normal able-bodied people doing this 
disgusting beta that I did. And I'm just like, no, like, you don't want to do that up to your ears, heel hook. Like, that's awful. Like, you don't need to do that. Um, so the influence of like, it's just so interesting to me because they're looking at my beta versus like a normal person. Did, did, did they not watch the film to the point that the greatest <laughs> rock climber in the world, Tommy Caldwell, couldn't do your beta? I, yeah. I, yeah, I just like, yeah, because my beta involved this like really high, awful heel hook to like act as a second hand. And I'm just like, bro, you can just stand, like just, just give your hand. Like, I love it. <laughs> um, so that's been really fun. And so outdoor climbing is different to me beta wise than indoor. So indoor, I look at a route and I've been climbing indoors for years now, a long time. And I, c I can look at a route and be like, okay, here's how they want you to climb it. And I have to make a choice, especially like Usually in cruxes, sometimes I have my own cruxes and I have to make a decision. And the hardest part for me is the mental part of do I do it the intended way or do I have to do my own weird, different beta? And oftentimes when I punt on a route indoors, it's because I chose wrong. And as soon mm. as I get back on and do it the other way, that's I'm like, OK, well, that was that was the choice. Outdoors is less black and white, right? Like there's no intended way. I never research a route, I guess. Like, I've never been like, oh, I'm going to project this. Let me YouTube and see what other people do. That, like, that's actually never occurred to me. <laughs> and I'll even work on a project, you know, with friends. And if anything, I watch them like, yeah, I can't do that, whatever. But they watch me and they're like, maybe I should try <laughs> doing that in instead. And yeah, I think beta busting, I guess I do it all the time without really thinking about it. And right. Yeah, I think that's the fun part, though. It's the puzzle that can be solved a bunch of different ways. I think that's just a really interesting thought experiment or, or even uh, like an actual practical experiment that, that a lot of climbers can do, which is to try to climb things a few different ways, even if they feel super awkward or wild or uncomfortable. I do this all the time when I'm working out a high crux, you know, something that'll be like an RP crux and off the hang, I put it together away and I'm like, that's it. Cool. Let's move on. And then I get up there on point and there's not even a shot at doing it. It might be some like heinous undercling lock off that felt fine off the hang, but would never come together when I've already climbed 50 or 60 feet, you know, of, of pumpy climbing prior to. So, you know, figuring out cruxes in a few different ways and just uh, trying to get creative, I think is, is really interesting um, for all of us to do. And of course, you're in effect forced to do that more often because you're only climbing with one arm or, or or really one hand right like it's um you've you've got a stump you've got an appendage that you can utilize you just don't have that second hand and and of course as a result you've got a much smaller ape index is am i characterizing that kind of correctly there like i can cramp with it kind of like if it's sure. if it's especially if it's vertical you know once things get overhanging like i climb in the ride all the time i love it but for me to clip or any clipping, really, I'm always locked off. I can't do like the, oh, okay, relax and clip. Like this arm always has to be bent to stay on the wall. Right. Uh, and that causes tendonitis issues. And guess what? I can't do all the stupid wrist exercises to like fix my elbow tendonitis. So that's a whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like the red is interesting because it is so steep. And I would call that my anti-style because not only do I have to stay locked off to clip, um, but then I'm constantly doing pull-ups in because... I can rest, but then I can't reach up with the second hand and pull up. It's like lots of one-arm swings get back on. And then once I'm right. on, I'm really close to the rock and can't see my feet. So the red has its own specific 
challenges, I guess. And there's certain ways where it's like, on one, you'd think that, oh, anybody could use my beta and try it. Like, oh, if I can do it with one hand, anyone can do it. But sometimes what I do, you can only do it with one hand. Like, you can only do this move with a stump. You can only grab this undercling in this way because I'm, I have a short little stump and the leverage is there. So that's always been interesting to me too, that there's certainly time, like we always focus on like what's harder for me, but there's probably lots of moves that's it's easier for me to do. Hell yeah. Yeah. I like that perspective. I think that's critical because, you know, for you, whether it's having a stump and, and getting leverage on an undercling that I wouldn't be able to stand up into, um, because in that instance, my arm's too long or, you know, short person beta, I think is always... Uh, an interesting counter to people thinking that tall people just always have it made because they can reach through. And and maybe tall people do have it made more often than short people. But, you know, I had Lynn Hill on this show last season and, and she spoke specifically about the advantages of being short at five foot three, but also the disadvantages, of course. And and part of that was when, when she was climbing the nose and figuring out ways to work through sections where she was using tiny little feet as intermediate bumps and, and these kinds of things that just took incredible power and skill. And of course she figured it out, but she also, you know, in the same breath almost said that she would get on climbs and maybe climb into a crux section and immediately recognize like, nope, that climb's not for me. That's a stopper. I'm I'm not going to be able to do it. And then I really loved it because she would just say like, yeah, I'm moving on. There's other climbs to do. And so she wouldn't, I guess, get down on herself or she wouldn't get obsessive about trying to do something that she almost immediately recognized she couldn't do. And I think there's lessons to be gleaned from that as well. And especially when you get in the harder grades, like I get more sh more like shutdown moves or it's just like you will not pass. And I'm like, all right, well, the rest of it was fine. So <laughs> right. that's it, I guess. <laughs> there's, nice. there's, always, there's always more climbs to do. So it's like... um it's hard. It's like you want to pick projects that are challenging but not impossible, even though they always feel impossible. That's like the fun part, right, is turning the impossible into possible. Um, but you also have to learn when to say no, like, and be okay with it, not feel like a failure. Like, there's always another client. Like, had I, had I had to walk away from days, I probably would have been super bummed. I'm working two, two climbs in the flat irons right now. And one I'm pretty attached to, the other one I'm like, mm, if I never send this, that's okay. <laughs> All right, so this is kind of like a perfect dovetail now into the mental game chapter, and it's such a rich area. I want to circle back to some of the things we've talked about, but first, generally speaking, where have you struggled with your mental game, Mo? I feel like I'm a very mental climber anyway. Like, I'm not I'm not mega strong. I'm not mega anything, really. Um, so I feel like where where I do my work is kind of in, in, in the head, like finding... And it's so hard to articulate finding the thing that that is almost there and just and figuring out what's almost there versus what you can't skip. Right. And it's just hard. It's more of like a sensation of just like this is the thing that's worth my time and effort. I think the mental game is different. Like right now I'm talking about outdoor hard projects. Otherwise, you know, for comps, it's different. For Alpine, it, it's different. Like Alpine, I love that it's a lot of head down suffering. It's just the grind. It's almost all type two. Right. Like. In the bugs trip, we did two loads up, two loads down, and a resupply. So I did like 30 miles of that stupid approach trail that has 3,000 feet of gain over two miles <laughs> like with 60-pound packs. Was it fun? No. But did I actually sickly enjoy it when it was over? Like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> how, how do you work through that Like when it's a real suffer fest like that? And 
we can tell ourselves all we want. Oh, it's type two. And in two months when I'm on the couch, I'm, I'm just going to you know be smiling. But when you're in the shit, you're in the shit. And so <laughs> um, do you have any tools that you employ? Is it you know music or a mantra or, or anything like that? To So the mantra is probably cliche. It's just like quitting is not an option. So like on these gnarly alpine approaches, you're just like, well, if I, it's not like I'm out going for a hike with my dog, like where no one cares if I quit. Like it's, it's almost negative pressure, right? It's like, oh, if I quit, I'm letting my partner down. I'm letting my team down. So it's like the negative fear pressure kind of that pays off sure. in the end. Um, and I think having that partner, you don't want to let down. Like when you're in that environment, like they're my motivation. Like it's really, it's easy to quit. It's fine to quit, but like to have that motivation of like, well, he's not going to quit, so I'm not going to quit. And I've been in situations, especially with my main alpine partner, we're playing quit chicken. Like you can see on our faces, each one of us wants to bail, but we're just like, mm, no, he has to say it first. <laughs> and then in the end, we're like, oh, well, we did it. So <laughs> I guess it worked out. I don't know. I almost enjoy the grind. Like it sucks, but it's like you feel really alive when it sucks too. Like that feeling of you know, getting blisters on my hips from these big packs and like just the lactic acid burn. Um, then you realize how lucky we are that that's the worst thing going on in our lives is just shitty hikes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm psyched just thinking about it. I love that. I love <laughs> that burn. What about, you know, you talked about kind of contrasting that then with whether it's comp or sport. Do you struggle with kind of like the typical, the typical two fears, the fear of failure, the fear of falling? Of course, there's a fear of falling because I, I fall... Like we're talking outside, like I can fall even in the gym, I guess, like I fall different places because like shocking, it's not a route set for me or like whoever put the bolts in the wall didn't think like, oh, there might be a five, six, one armed woman climbing here one time. So I should put these bolts where she can clip them safely. <laughs> so like, it's interesting. I've had fights actually with Cedar, right. When we were working the project or we were just out climbing and I was just like, oh, I don't know if I can make that clip. And he's like, well, no one knows if they can make the clip. And I'm like, yeah, but odds are most able-bodied people are falling generally in the same place. <laughs> Whereas for me, like I could, I could punt on like the 5'8 section of a 5'11 or something. Like it could just, yeah, it could be sketch. Actually, I had, I had to bail on core angles because like we fired off like the crux bitch, but then this like 5'8 stupid move, I just couldn't reach hmm. out of this crack. So that's fear. I'm always struggling with like, is Fear is interesting, right? Because you have like the primate monkey fear, which is just like, I shouldn't be up a cliff right now. This is dangerous. Um, and that's usually an invalid fear. Like, But you can also have valid fears where it's like, well, there's a real risk if I were to fall here. Like, It's separating those two. It's like, why am I afraid right now? And it's learning when to be like, this is valid. Then you do risk analysis. But if you realize, oh, this is an invalid fear. This is a monkey fear. Then that's the one you're just like, okay, suck it up. <laughs> How how have you just specifically for yourself worked through some of that? I mean, I'm still working through it, right? It's like like for trad especially because stopping to place gear, like it's it's pretty quick to like you know clip a bolt, right? But to finagle gear and like what if you're in a weird stance and you pulled the wrong size? Now you just doubled the length of time you're standing there, getting pumped in your calves and like my stump's starting to slide around weird. And um, so for me, that's just pyramid building, like. I, I'm working my way through all the five sixes in Eldo right now. You know, I'm starting at a place where I'm not afraid of falling because I'm not going to fall. And then getting that mileage. I think with lead climbing especially, it's, it's just about mileage and starting at a place where you're not even thinking that you're on the sharp end because it's so chill. Now, can we just contrast that for a second with comps where you literally have maybe one shot or a couple shots to, you know, to, to do the thing, um, which I've never experienced, you know, like I'm sport climber, trad climber. It's like that rock's likely not going anywhere unless somebody 
breaks a hold or something like yeah. that. But like, I've never felt the the pressure or the stress of like, all right, you got to do it. Unless I'm putting it on myself where I'm like, yeah. oh, you know, my kids are watching and I really want to do it for them. But that's not like, that's not the same as being yeah. at Worlds or something. Do you feed off of that or or is it a limiter? You know, it's probably, again, I kind of enter a similar space of getting focused and in comps, that's more of a bad thing because um, you do forget to breathe. You do forget to stop. The tunnel vision hurts you a lot. I mean, that's probably the least fun part about comps is like you do have this like ominous one and done. And, and it affects it like seriously affects your climbing because so in Salt Lake this year, um, I got second by like a plus point or something. And I was super bummed because I've beaten this girl in the past and the really strong French girl didn't come. So I was like, this is my last chance to get gold because I can't beat the French girl, but I can beat this girl. And then I didn't. And I was just like, oh, well. But then the next day I went back and got like 20 more moves. And it was just the pure nerves, weird, bad focus of of an on-site comp style climb. You just like pretty much take away two or three letter grades, I think, to like what you would on-site with your buddies in the gym to what you would do in a comp because it's just that wild. Yeah, that pressure there. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's I think that's fascinating because there there is like... It's the Monday morning quarterback or whatever, you know. Totally. Like, I was just like, if I just did this yesterday, I would have my gold medal. Like, ah, oh, God right. damn it. Like, <laughs> so how do you train for that? Or how do you work? Like, whether it's with your coach or your team, you know. I think it's a similar thing with exposure therapy, right? And as a paraclimber, we don't get that because we just don't have that many opportunities to compete. Like, our World Cup circuit this year was three stops. Whereas mm -hmm. if you look at lead Boulder, they have double digits. Um, and e even domestic comps, there's so many that able-bodied people can do. You know, there's team trials, there's nationals, there's the Boulder Cups, um, and we have one nationals. That's it. That's our only serious comp that we have here for para. So we just don't, I guess that's a level playing field in that we don't have the opportunity. So all of us have about as much training going into it. The Europeans definitely have more of an advantage because they always do all the World Cup stops, whereas the U.S. kids, we can't all spend all summer flying to Europe. <laughs> Whereas for them, it's like, oh, a weekend trip to Innsbruck, like, right? Um, so I think we're at a disadvantage for that. Um, I don't know. I think at the end of my career, I'm kind of in the F it. Let's just roll with it. All right, well, let's uh, kind of look at the big picture here. Let's zoom out from your own climbing and talk about things that you're passionate about and that bring you purpose outside of just climbing. So I'm, I'm in a spot... Um, I guess we'll call it selfish altruism, where the more effort that I put into growing the paraclimbing community and opportunities for adaptive climbers, the more I also benefit. <laughs> so, um, so it doesn't feel like I'm just, it's not like I'm helping rescue kittens or anything. Like I get real <laughs> reward out of the work I put into it. I think that's the best, personally, I think that's the best kind of altruism uh, because either it's selfish because you just feel good when you're doing it you feel good when you're writing a check or you feel good because you're volunteering or you're getting something back i think you know we there should be a reward because then it incentivizes more yeah, doing good in the world it's so. motivating it's That's motivating right. um okay i'm i'm pretty busy so right now i'm on the board of usa climbing as well as on their paraclimbing committee and we're working pretty hard at adding more domestic um higher level competitions we're working at growing our nationals, you know, and with, with competitive climbing, we are trying to grow it from both ends, right? It's like, we're trying to get totally new people in who never thought they would compete in their lives. And on the other end, growing our like elite team to where they can, they can win a ton of medals. So like, trying to get both of those in. 
And then at the same time, I just joined the board of the American Alpine Club with my mission to be, I want every one of your festivals to have adaptive programming, whether it's an adaptive clinic, whether it's making sure the sites are all accessible, um, you know, for the slideshows and stuff. Like that's, that's my mission. I, I told them, I was like, I don't have time to help with your budget or fundraise, but I will. <laughs> this is my focus. And that's, that's cool. They're so stoked on it. They're great to work with. And then my, my pet project is the Adaptive Climbers Festival which is now back after COVID. And it's, it's a special place to me because, you know, programs that have done adaptive climbing have been around forever. And it's, it's very structured and it's very much you're going to a camp. Like they take care of you. Some, some programs even like tie your knots for you. And it's just not really a place to grow. A lot of them aren't run by disabled people. There's not a lot of that input. And watching other communities, whether it's BIPOC, LGBTQ, kind of not only find their place in the outdoors, but become self-sustaining and like their people are driving their programs. I've kind of realized lately, like, oh man, I feel like adaptive climbers should maybe get a say in how they, how they do this, like how they approach climbing as a community. And so sure. the Adaptive Climbers Festival is dreamed up by adaptive athletes. It's the clinics are taught by adaptive athletes. You know, we have a ton of allies and a ton of great support from able-bodied people. Like it's not... It's not a treehouse with like no normies allowed sign on it. Like it's it's very <laughs> it's very community based, but the leadership and the and the the places it goes comes from the community, which I find very empowering. Yeah, that's really cool. And and it sounds like different from a lot of the clinics or the festivals that you've uh, encountered out there as a disabled athlete. Which you know, I think that's something that stumped did really well, or that you and Cedar portrayed very well in the film Stumped was. That I don't know. I guess this notion that able-bodied people um, want to help, uh, and, and obviously, it, it you know, I'm sure 99% of the cases it comes from a very good place, right? But that oftentimes it's a little tone deaf, or maybe um, the help isn't actually what's needed. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like I want to help you, but on my own terms that I'm comfortable with, and it's like, but that's not really helping, like. Hmm. Like in the end, you have to set aside like your preconceptions and like I'll I'll admit like we have some people in our disabled crew where I'm just like, dude, you probably should not lead climb. But that's not my call to make. Right. Like, well, and I've person... got friends where I'm like, dude, you should not <laughs> yeah. lead climb, you know, and I'm, and I'm just like at the end of the day, I'm like, hey, man, here's the risks. Here's what we can do. If you still want to do it, who am I to who am I to tell you what to do? Right. I always I always try to say like when people are like, oh, what's your five year, 10 year plan? I really hope I'm working myself out of the job so that, you know, the movement grows so much and the community grows so much that like I'm not unique anymore. Right. Like I don't climb hard enough to be recognizable. I guess. <laughs> or like I hope there's somebody there's so many adaptive climbers out there that I just don't matter anymore. Um, that would be the best feeling ever. It's already happened with comps. I used to like, win them all just for showing up and now I get my ass kicked. And I'm like, this is a cool problem to have. <laughs> Hell yeah, that's such a cool outlook to have, Mo. You just bring such incredible stoke to the sport for everyone. So thank you for doing it. It's just been awesome to chat with you. I look forward to talking again. I'll see you out at the red. Absolutely. <laughs> And that wraps up our chat with the stump-jamming, comp-winning, alpine-crushing, fun-loving Mo Beck. What did you all think of this combo? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram, at mo.in.mountains, at Ryan Devlin Outside, and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now, in a second, I'm going to hit you with my takeaways and hook you up with some swag. But first, let's support the brands that are supporting The Struggle. 
Shout out to Fizzy Vantage for being the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Created by legendary coach and my favorite new belay partner, Eric Hurst, their line of science-backed products is gonna help you train harder and climb stronger. I've been using it for years and it has absolutely helped me to level up my climbing. Look for it in Europe from the Epic TV online shop and in the US at select gyms and of course at fizzyvantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And y'all remember to look for the Sirocco helmet by Petzl when you stop into your local gear shop. It is the best of the best when it comes to protecting your melon and going above and beyond the standards for top and side protection. Access the inaccessible at Petzl.com. And lastly, if you want to grip with confidence, try Friction Lab's secret stuff. It lasts forever, it feels amazing, and it grips so good it doesn't even seem fair. Pop on over to FrictionLabs.com and use code STRUGGLE20 for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less, climb more with Friction Labs. So my takeaways from this chat with Mo are many. First, and perhaps most importantly, my new favorite motto, there's no goal worth skipping dessert over. Now, obviously there are times, of course, to hunker down and get disciplined, but I really like this perspective that, that Mo brought. She competes at the highest levels in the game, y'all, but she also knows that there are seasons to relax, seasons to build, seasons to perform. We cannot constantly be peaking, and Mo brought a really good reminder about that. You know, I also really loved your perspective on mixing things up with training, kind of regardless of whatever level we're all climbing at. It's just super important to keep things fresh in both mind and body by bringing loads of variety into our climbing and into our training. So with that, I think I'm gonna go work on some slopers and then enjoy a big slice of carrot cake. Well, that clips the anchors on this episode. I just wanna give a huge hello and big, big thank you to all of you new patrons out there. I cannot believe how many of you came aboard to hear the full pro clinic with Tyler Nelson recently. Thank you for doing so. I have got some more really fantastic pro clinics coming your way soon. If you're not a patron, would you consider becoming one? I'm hustling pretty hard over here in the podcast slash utility closet, and it would be awesome if you could support, if you have the means, of course, to spare a few bucks a month. I promise you I will spend it wisely on caffeine and beer so that they perfectly balance out, just like these podcasts do for your training and your climbing. And I'm just going to keep working my butt off over here in the closet to bring you awesome content that'll help you level up. So swing on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check it all out. Thank you. I love you. Now, if you'd like a free sticker, that is easy, y'all. Simply rate and review the show wherever you listen. I would love five stars if you think that I've earned it. And then just share that review to IG, like take a little screen grab of it, share it in your stories and tag at The Struggle Climbing Show. And I'll just slide into your DMs and get you that sweet, sweet sticker. The Struggle's Carbon Neutral in partnership with the Hummel Foundation, whose mission is to support solar energy for a more equitable world. Y'all pop over to HummelFoundation.org to learn about the amazing projects they're supporting, such as the Rural Women Empowerment Network, which is a community-based solar power system to increase access and energy, irrigation, and clean water in one of the most arid regions of Uganda. Y'all, they're just doing awesome work. Check it all out. And lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plug Tone Audio Collective. Y'all take a look at what they're putting out right now. It is such good stuff. 
I'm your host, Ryan Devlin, and this show is produced by myself and Mary Mathis. The struggle makes us stronger. Let's climb hard and do good things in the world. <laughs>